Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tech Tumble, Fangs, Cryptos, and Tesla face a second day of losses. Friending Facebook Australia agrees to deal to unblock new sharing and hack hearing. The Senate investigates the massive SolarWinds cyber attack. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Thank you, as always, for joining us as we mark a very sad new milestone in the ongoing COVID pandemic. The United States death toll surpassing 500,000 lives. That's a fifth of all of those lives lost around the world. President Biden imploring people not to become numb to this sorrow, and that applies wherever you are in the world. And we agree. But we also point out that more than 63 million people have now recovered. And amid that heartbreak comes hope. New U.S. cases of COVID are down 74 percent from peak this year. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson sees England out of lockdown by the summer. And vaccinations now are beginning this week in Australia and in South Korea. There is good news among the heartbreak. For global investors, though, well, they've long since jumped ahead and are now wondering when support might be curtailed, if inflation might finally rise and how central banks around the world will respond. Step forward, Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying before Congress in the next hour and likely, I think, to be very careful to avoid fueling fears of support withdrawal, even at the cost of fueling future inflation. And I'll say it, potential bubbles too in asset prices. Tech stocks in the interim feeling some of the pressure. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Tesla have pulled back sharply. Tesla, in fact, now in bear market territory, down some 20 percent from their recent peak. Bitcoin actually has lost an eye-watering 16 percent over the last 24 hours. If you remember, the one thing I did promise you with this was volatility. Just a bit of context, though. Bitcoin up around 400% in the past 12 months. Tesla up almost 300%. And that's the difference between investing and day trading in these markets. It's key. All right, let's get to the drivers. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, stock markets, fine. We're seeing a shakedown here for some of the tech stocks, but remain at or around record highs. The bond market shifts, though, really, I think, have a less investors alerted. And into the middle of this, Jay Powell has to manage the nervousness about the future with the work that still has to be done in the real economy. Clearly, I think if Powell says anything during his congressional testimony, either today or tomorrow, that suggests that the Fed is more worried about inflation and may start taking away the proverbial punch bowl, that will alarm investors. I think you're going to see 
that Powell will continue to stress the Fed party line. And, you know, now also Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's, uh, you know, mantra as well, that we need stimulus for the economy. It is still a fragile recovery. Yes, people are getting vaccinated. Yes, we're starting to see businesses reopen. But that does not mean that it is time to put up that proverbial mission accomplished banner and say, we've won the fight against COVID. It's all over. That's not going to be the case. I think Powell is going to be very, very measured in his language and try and do his best to not signal that the Fed is more worried about inflation, which is still a future threat, not a present threat. Yeah, he's got to be very careful with the language here. But to uh, the point I made earlier, and you're making it too, I think, I think they're okay with a bit of inflation here. And as we heard on the show from the San Francisco Fed, we're not going to pull back on stimulus here, even if we see asset prices rising, because there are people at the lower end of the economy that still need a great deal of support. What we also saw, and you mentioned her was the Treasury Secretary, uh, Janet Yellen, she called Bitcoin an inefficient way of conducting transactions. She also called it highly speculative. She also raised questions actually about the energy intensity of mining Bitcoin, which we know actually is quite phenomenal, even relative to some of the other digital assets. What do we make of her comments on Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin prices are tumbling a bit in, uh, you know, re- as a result of her comments. There are also some bearish comments from Bill Gates as well. He actually said in a Bloomberg interview that, you know, unless you are as wealthy as Elon Musk, then Bitcoin is probably not a good bet for you. And, you know, let's point out that not even Bill Gates anymore is as wealthy as Elon Musk. So it is telling that he made these comments. But here are a couple of things that for the Bitcoin bulls out there to point out. Gates, like Warren Buffett, has been wrong in the past about being uber skeptical of Bitcoin. It's obviously continued to rise, even though it's been volatile. And, you know, I think Janet Yellen has also made some comments about the validity of digital stable coins. So I think that people will find some bullish things in what Yellen has to say about cryptocurrencies writ large, even though Bitcoin, like many other assets, has probably gone too far too fast. And you could say the same thing with tech stocks, Julie. I think it's notable that when you look right now, Alphabet is the only member of the FANGs that's actually still up this year. And that's probably because they've lagged the rest of the FANGs for a long time. So Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Netflix, they're all down now in the red this year, while the value stock that's Google has actually continued to rally. And you might see that shift into value during these volatile times. Yeah, it's such a great point. Short term, medium term and longer term, a bit of consolidation here makes a great deal of sense to me, given what we've seen, irrespective of what the future path of regulation, investing, the economy looks like. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, speaking of Facebook, friends again with Australia and the row about making big tech pay for journalism appears to be settled there. A deal has been struck with the government to amend a draft law about paying news outlets for stories. Well, Facebook has refriended Australia and Australian news will be restored to the Facebook platform. And Facebook has committed to entering into good faith negotiations with Australian news media businesses in seeking to reach agreements to pay for content. This follows a series of intensive negotiations with Facebook 
And Selena Wang joins us now. Um, Selena, Facebook said the whole way along, look, we're not the same as Google in the way that we operate our platforms, the way that news media is shared. We need to have some carve outs here and acknowledgement of the difference. Did they get that in this deal? Well, Julia, essentially, this amendment now to this proposed law is going to allow Facebook to retain a bit more control. And really at the core here, why this is so important, Julia, it's because of the precedent it sets in not only the future of the news industry, but also in monetization in other countries. Regulators are, of course, watching this incredibly closely. Now, under that initial proposed law, that would have allowed uh, publishing companies as well as these tech giants to bargain with over this uh, the value of their news content and essentially enter these binding arbitrations if they could not come to an agreement. Now, Facebook took great issue with this arbitration clause. So now under this change, that arbitration is going to be a last resort after a period of good faith mediation. Facebook now also gets more time to reach these deals with these publishers. Now I want you to take a listen to what Campbell Brown, Facebook's VP of Global News Partnerships had to say. Now he said, quote, after further discussions with the Australian government, we have come to an agreement that will allow us to support the publishers we choose to, including small and local publishers. The government has clarified we will retain the ability to decide if news appears on Facebook so that we will not automatically be subject to a forced negotiation. And Julie, of course, Facebook was harshly criticized for its reaction to this proposed legislation in blocking news sites in Australia, which led to more misinformation, which is already a massive problem on Facebook to fill that void without reputable news content. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Did um, was some of the backlash that they received as a result of this renegotiation of the legislation worth it here? I mean, it's become a proxy battle, I think, for the world looking to tackle big tech and looking to protect in some way local media and their news articles that get shared on social media platforms. Selena, what do we think? Who won this battle? Did the consumer and those that consume news and local news win this? Well, the Australian government certainly thinks that's the case. Now, some say that this is basically a clarification and that Facebook is essentially just getting more time to do what Google has already done. Now, Facebook and Google, of course, both balked at this initial proposal, but Google took such a dramatically different approach. And in recent weeks, we've seen them strike these deals with big media companies, including News Corp and Reuters, the Financial Times. But others say that this amendment is going to allow Facebook to basically circumvent some of the most stringent parts of the law. Now, what's interesting here is that Facebook, of course, this entire time has been arguing that the entire proposition of the initial proposal was wrong and that Facebook is actually providing these news content websites an important value by directing traffic to their sites that wouldn't have been there before. And of course, publishers have been arguing that no, for years, this is actually destroying, disrupting their business model. And it's been extremely detrimental and harmful, ripping apart their business models. Now, this is all being very, very closely watched around the world. Julia, I still think it's too early to say who exactly is going to win. But fundamentally, under this law, it does mean that Facebook is going to have to pay publishers for news. So in a very, very important change when it comes to the future of news journalism and monetization of this business. 100% agree. And we'll look who else around the world looks to adopt similar 
if not um, the same framework, and then we will know for sure. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that update there. To Washington now, and the powerful Senate Intelligence Committee set to hold a hearing on the massive SolarWinds hack that took place at the back end of last year. Hackers got access to thousands of companies and government offices worldwide. Just to give you a sense of the scale, that map shows you where this hack touched. The US says Russia was likely behind the devastating cyber attack. Alex Markart joins us now with more. Alex, this sort of got lost in the politics of whatever else was going on with election fallout and spillover. But attention needs to be placed on simply what happened here and what response needs to happen in light of the findings. What do we hear today? Well, and those are the questions, uh, what needs to be done in particular, that are going to be put to the, the heads of these, uh, these private companies in the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Julia, this is the first open hearing that the Senate Intelligence Committee has been, uh, is holding uh, in the wake of this unprecedented hack. Uh, they have held other classified hearings behind closed doors with the intelligence committee, uh, with the intelligence community, intelligence agencies, which they have criticized as being disjointed and disorganized. So this will be out in the open. Julia, you'll remember that it, back in December, it was the private sector. It was the cybersecurity company FireEye that actually alerted the world to this incredibly sophisticated hack that is now being uh, blamed on Russia. And so today uh, we will be hearing not only uh, from FireEye, but also from another cybersecurity firm, CrowdStrike, the heads of Microsoft and of SolarWinds, which of course is at the center uh, of this saga because it was a SolarWinds product by and large, mostly, that delivered uh, this, this, uh, the, the, the Russians into uh, these systems. Uh, we are now hearing from the Biden administration in a way that, uh, that, that indicates that they are taking this much more seriously than the Trump administration. They have appointed the most senior cyber official ever in a White House. Her name is Ann Neuberger. Uh, and she spoke to the press last week uh, saying that because of the scale, the scope, the sophistication uh, of this attack that she says was months in the making, it's going to take several months for the Biden administration uh, to, uh, to complete their investigation. She did put a bit of a finer point on the, on the number of entities that were compromised. She said that it was nine federal agencies and around 100 uh, companies. Uh, but now the question becomes, Julia, how to respond. And this is a fierce debate in the cyber community and the national security community as to whether this was just an act of espionage by Russia, the kind of cyber espionage that the U.S., engages in around the world and would like to engage in, or whether this was an attack uh, that demands a response. The Biden administration uh, has said that there will be some sort of response. Uh, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, told our Christian Amanpour several days ago uh, that it's just a matter of weeks before we see a series of steps uh, to address uh, this attack by Russia. Sullivan made the point that the past administration, the Trump administration, said that this was likely uh, at, uh, likely Russia that carried out this hack. And he says that they are ready to go farther than that. Julia. Yeah, Alex, three things for me. The first is, how does the private sector ensure its defenses are stronger? Same for the government, given that they were penetrated. And then there's a response on the, the perpetrators of this. We shall see. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that context there. Thank you. All right, the latest now on the dramatic engine failure of a United Airlines plane over Denver, Colorado. Dan Simon is live at Denver International Airport with the latest. Dan, what can you tell us? 
Well, hi, Julia. The question going forward, uh, was this an isolated incident or does it speak to a more chronic issue with this particular airline, the 777 and the Pratt & Whitney engine uh, that powered it? Uh, what I can tell you is that American regulators, they determined that the engine blade, which caused this engine to essentially explode, showed signs of metal fatigue and it's going to be examined under a microscope at the Pratt and Whitney laboratory. Uh, regulators also want to determine why the engine continued to spit out flames despite the fact that the fuel line going to it had essentially been shut down. But we should point out, Julia, that there is no danger to the flying public. All of these airliners have been grounded while officials look to see what kind of guidance they can give. Do they need to go in and, and repair some of these engine blades, uh, do some swapping out, etc. cetera. Uh, but we should point out, it's an important uh, issue to point out, that nobody should really be concerned about it. Julia? Yeah, still shocking images, and we will wait for that full investigation too. Dan Simon, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, still to come. Here on First Move, another bite out of big tech's revenues. The state of Maryland launching the first ever U.S. tax on digital advertising. A message from Mars, NASA releases the first recording of audio captured on the Red Planet. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are softer pre-market as we await testimony from Fed Chair Jay Powell in the next hour. Interest rate sensitive tech stocks look set for a second straight day of sharp declines on fears over rising bond yields. Bond investors worried that firmer economic growth and, of course, the massive new stimulus bill making its way through Congress will likely at some point lift inflation. This is interesting, too. In a recent tweet, bond market investor Jeff Gunlack said, quote, lots of liquid poured into a funnel creates a torrent. Bitcoin may be the stimulus asset. Doesn't look like gold is. Hmm. Lots to discuss. Joining us now is Carl Bass, founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management. Carl, fantastic to have you on the show this morning. Um, you know, most investors got bored or tired waiting for inflation to rise or spike at least over the last decade, but bond markets are now starting to react. What's your sense of where we're headed and how worried are you? Well, you know, number one, first of all, Julia, great to be here. Um, secondly, I think that um, when you look at the way that inflation is calculated, specifically, um, 40% or so of, of the inflation calculation is is very fo is focused uh, on uh, U.S. Uh, basically uh, rents and uh, mm -hmm. they call it owner's equivalent rent, uh, and housing. But as we just saw in the case Schiller print, uh, you saw housing prices year over year nationwide were up 10 percent. And yet the housing component of inflation is way down, holding inflation down. And you, you have to scratch your head and say what's going on. And what's really going on, Julia, is uh, it's it's the fact that in the mismanaged states in the, in the U.S., i.e., call it New York, California, uh, you're seeing rents collapse. And uh, the price at which people are willing to rent things on the coast is is uh, affecting uh, the way that inflation is calculated. For, for those of us in the rest of the United States, we're seeing already substantial inflation. Look at copper. Copper's mm. doubled last year. Lumber prices doubling. The price to build things is doubling year over year, Julia. We're not talking about a 1% decline in inflation or a flat number. We're talking about a doubling in many areas of your life. And so uh, I think inflation's already here and everybody knows it. And the size of this stimulus, you know, we're talking about another trillion nine of, uh, of a COVID relief bill. 
Uh, and right behind that, uh, I believe you're going to see something uh, close to three trillion of infrastructure announced immediately after this COVID relief bill goes through. So, Julia, we're going to see another five trillion dollars printed uh, uh, or beginning to be printed this year. So I, I think people need to be thinking longer term about what they want to own. What do you buy? And to Jeff Gunlack's point, which is why I raised it, um, do you see digital assets, Bitcoin, for example, as a stimulus asset? You know, I, I think there I, I think there are a couple of I, I like the concept of the blockchain um, and digital assets uh, recorded on the blockchain, i.e. call it chain of title for real estate. And there are many practical applications. I look Bitcoin is uh is a trading asset uh and and i think uh it is it has captured the attention uh of many people around the world i just i can't imagine uh, over the long run that bitcoin's success doesn't become its failure or its uh, uh its structural impediment meaning the g20 if i were a g20 finance minister um i'm not going to basically cede my fiscal sovereignty to some digital asset created by a bunch of uh, tech people. Now, what that doesn't mean is I, th- I think it's probably going to trade up a lot. Uh, so don't don't get me wrong uh, as far as uh, the trading prices. But I think in the long run, uh, it's, it's just an asset like art, like uh, precious metals, like anything that people trade at, at a price. Uh, I think I think the digital assets of the future are things that will be linked to the blockchain that are that are more tangible and real. Or stable coins that are issued by central banks. Yeah, so you know there are probably thirty-five central banks at mm. some stage of of issuance of what they call central bank digital currency (CBDC), and um, that's something that, from a national security perspective, our country and the other, the rest of the the developed world better spend a lot of time on focusing on how these things are going to be programmed. Uh, what kind of knowledge they're going to have, i.e. what kind of artificial intelligence will be embedded in some of these CBDCs. And um, what that does when we all think about this is it gives governments even more, uh, call it uh, totalitarian control over their populations. And places like China will be able to export their digital authoritarianism if they're able to pull this off. So uh, this is a this is something that I think uh, you and the rest of the media will be covering uh, a lot more in 2022. The irony is, is that that's the entire proposition or a substantial part of it for having these decentralized digital currencies is the fact that they want to get away from that central bank power because they think that they've, you know, printed so much currency here that they're devaluing the prospect of um, of fiat currencies or ordinary currencies. So it's kind of a circular argument here. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, what's going on in... Bitcoin and the rest of the of the private crypto market um, is basically a, a a rage against the machine, right? It's Rebellion. a rage against centralism, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but in the end, Julia, um, our taxes will be paid in what what uh, our countries deem to be legal tender, and so will the rest of the I, the, the G20. Um, and you know, the fact that all the cryptocurrencies are denominated in dollars is a little bit of a head scratcher as well, right? Uh, we never quote them really in in their own in their own terms, it's it's always in, in dollars. So, look, the dollar's here to stay. The question is, um, you know, how how important will the dollar be five years from now, ten years from now, as far as uh, the globe's concerned? And that's something that uh, the U.S. Treasury and the Fed uh, better spend a lot of time thinking about. I couldn't agree more. Very quickly, and then I want to move on. You said it doesn't mean that 
digital assets like Bitcoin can't go up a lot. Are you willing to define what a lot is very quickly? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the sky's the limit. Uh, the, mm. the beauty of the story is, you know, there are only 21 million of these things out there. And, and um, a lot of people believe that scarcity equals value. And if you look back to all of the speculative manias that have uh, that have uh, per kind of uh, existed around the world, you know, back to tulip mania, the price of one tulip bulb uh, at the peak of, of uh, uh, Holland's tulip mania traded for the price of an average house uh, in Holland. Um, so if you look at average home prices, we have a, we have a long way to go if, if we're going to reach uh, that zenith. But look, in the end, I think that there are so many smart people, people much smarter than I, uh, trading these things. And um, I, I think that uh, I don't believe we're at the top. Uh, I think we're going to see a surge much higher uh, in the near future. Uh, but but then again, uh, it's just a trading asset. You know, it would be remiss of me to have you on the show and not talk to you about China and, and Hong Kong. And you've long expressed your views in a very um, poignant, I think, and forceful manner over what you're seeing. And I just I wanted to get your views on the comments made by China's foreign minister yesterday. Um, he said Xinjiang, Tibet and other areas where ethnic minorities live are even more important examples of human rights progress in China. I mean, he went on to, to make other points, but in light of how sensitive a subject this is amongst everything else and the tension points between China and the West, your views on what we're seeing here? I mean, that's like calling uh, Jeffrey Epstein's Island House uh, a, a, a sanctuary for uh, pedophilia research. I mean, this is crazy for them to say things like this. If you look at there, there, we haven't minced words here in the United States, starting with Secretary Pompeo and continuing on with uh, Secretary uh, of State Blinken. Uh, we have said and designated the, the areas of Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, Mongolia, and China, uh, China's government as committing t crimes against humanity and genocide. China is using its own reach and advertising dollars. Hell, I don't know if you saw yesterday, Julia, but they were using the Times Square um, uh, media assets in New York City to, to talk about the origin of, of the Wuhan virus. I mean, you, you can't even make up the dystopian uh, craziness that's going on between the U.S. and China. They are an evil regime. They're the largest existential threat to, to, to U.S. Uh, democracy. And um, they keep exploiting our, our, our openness and, our, and the cracks in our society. I mean, for them to say that they are uh, that, that I literally can't believe that that foreign minister said that. But then again, it's China. You know, they act they act as the victim at all times when they're the perpetrator. So, Kyle, uh, I have one I think, minute. I have one more minute. What would you have President Biden do? I just I, I mean, look at the facts and and stick to protecting the United States national security. Don't listen to China. You know, there's a schism today, Julia. You have this scenario where our own State Department is saying that the Chinese government commits genocide and crimes against humanity, and our Wall Street can't wait to invest another dollar in China, Julia. I actually don't know how you square that circle. And, and uh, it needs to be talked about more because Wall Street can't wait to speculate more uh, and invest in China, while our own Department of State is telling the world that they uh, are committing genocide and, and crimes against humanity. I mean, I know we said never again after World War II, but maybe that should have had an asterisk next to it. Never again, unless we think we can make some money off of it. Yeah.
Follow the money and you find the answers, even if you don't like what you get when you get there. Carl Bass, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Founder and Chief Investment Officer at Heyman Capital Management. We'll speak soon, please. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are open for business this Tuesday. The tech sell-off continues in early trading. The Nasdaq's now down around 6% from record highs it hit just last week on fears of the effect of higher borrowing costs. Shares, meanwhile, of Home Depot falling after pulling guidance for the year. The home improvement retailer has benefited from lockdown purchases, but its sales outlook is uncertain as those economic restrictions lift. Meanwhile, AMC should be a big winner when normal life resumes or some sense of normal life. Shares rallying on word that New York City cinemas will reopen with limited capacity next week. Economic reopenings will help the financial sector as well. Shares of banking giant HSBC lower by uh, what you can see, 1.3% in London after it posted a 34% profit drop compared with the same time last year. But in a hopeful sign for the future, it will pay an interim dividend. The UK-based bank also announcing an accelerated push into Asia, including India. Annie Stewart joins us now. Anna, and I know you've been poring over all the details here. An interim dividend, so a good sign for the future. But what I liked about it was the refocusing on areas of growth like Asia and again looking at some of the less profitable businesses and saying perhaps it's time to really look at spinning them off. Exactly. And it's really a continuation of that strategy mm. strategy that you and I, Julia, were speaking about only a year ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, but the huge restructuring plan for HSBC unveiled this time last year was all about shedding 35,000 jobs and pivoting to Asia. Really, what we're seeing today in terms of the strategy is just a continuation of that. And that's hardly surprising given the pandemic has only brought interest rates even lower for even longer. Uh, Europe, the US looking much less profitable even than they were perhaps a year ago. So we have a $6 billion investment in Asia. Most of that money is going to be poured into wealth management in Hong Kong and Singapore and in India. In terms of cost cutting, we saw a lot of that already last year. So although they are doing a few things, they're looking to sell their retail banking unit in France, or exploring options for their US division. We didn't actually get a lot of detail on that, which has disappointed a few analysts. But I think the big uh, takeaway for the shareholder is certainly... Hurrah, a return of a dividend, only 15 cents a share though, and it's just an interim payout. Quarterly dividends not returning to next year. Share buybacks are possible, but not in the near future. Julia? Yeah, got to work out whether you can do something else with that cash before you start buying back your shares. I think everybody's very sensitive to it. Interesting part, I think, of what we heard in the press, Anna, and it goes back to the 35,000 job cuts that we were talking about, and it feels like 10 years ago, not one. Um, The amount of people (laughs) that are going to be perhaps working from home going forward and how much of a reduction that equates to in terms of office space. This is a stunning figure. Anna, talk us through this. This was a lovely little nugget in the press conference brought up by the COO. HSBC is planning to reduce their real estate footprint by 40%. Now, we don't have a time frame for that, and we don't know what that really translates to in terms of how many employees will be working from home or flexibly working in the future. And of course, you would expect that 30,000 job cut announced last year to feed into it. But they have said as a result of the pandemic, as a result of flexible working and the fact that 85% 
of their staff are now capable of working from home, that is why they're going to look to reduce their office footprint. They're going to keep Canary Wharf as their headquarters, but they're going to let some of those leases go on other offices as they come up. And I find this fascinating, Julia, because I think this is something we're going to see in the earnings reports coming up in the next few uh, months and quarters. As the pandemic looks to end, as restrictions are lifted, companies are going to have to think about this. How much real estate do you really need in the future? And my goodness, Julia, what are these cities going to look like when we return? So many high street stores in London have gone bust. The hospitality sector is on its knees. And perhaps not everyone will be returning to those cities when we're out the other end. Julia? Full credit to you for spotting this. This an eye-opening figure. And to your point, exactly something that we have to keep looking out for from these big companies, just to give us a sense of what cities of the future, at least in the short term, perhaps post-COVID, are going to look like. And uh, that spells trouble. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, coming up, unlawful, unfair and unconstitutional. Big tech lobbyists firing on all cylinders against a digital tax in Maryland. The senator pushing it is on the other side of this break. Welcome back to First Move. Earlier in the show, we heard how policymakers in Australia are tightening the screw on big tech revenues. Well, 16,000 kilometres away in Maryland, a challenge of a different kind has begun. It's the first state in America to impose a tax on digital advertising and lobbying groups backed by Amazon, Facebook and Google are, of course, trying to stop it. Maryland wants a slice of global advertising revenues to pay for education. For Facebook, by the way, that was $84 billion last year and Google brought in a whopping $147 billion. Bill Ferguson is the president of the Maryland Senate and a main driver of the bill. Senator Ferguson, fantastic to have you on the show. Can I just ask what your message is to big tech here? And for my understanding and for my audience, the message is, if you're looking to be a social media platform that hosts an ad that someone in Maryland sees on any kind of device, then you have to pay for that right. So thank you, Julia. It's it's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank thank you for your interest. I would add an important caveat that you would have to be a business that has over $100 million dollars in annual revenue from digital uh, digital advertisements. And you would have to have uh, received a million dollars in revenue from advertising in the state of Maryland. So we aren't talking about anybody that just wants to advertise in the state of Maryland. It is large platforms that consistently and regularly avail themselves of the privileges of the state of Maryland and benefit from the investments that we've made over time. Hugh, you're trying to capture the externalities here, and, and your caveat is a very important one. This is not a spray tax. This is very targeted from the, to those that benefit. Precisely. And I think, you know, as the economy has changed dramatically over the last 20 years, you know, you think about it, a number of these companies that would qualify under these revenue uh, limits are companies that almost didn't even exist 20 years ago. Uh, so our economy has changed rapidly. In the meantime, state Uh, taxation models have not. And so what we're trying to do is modernize our tax code so that we are all able to ensure that uh, companies that benefit from past investments that states have made in public health, in public safety, and most importantly, in public education, uh, when they avail themselves of those privileges, they have to pay their fair share. Uh, And so we think that this is a matter of, of basic 
basic tax fairness and efficiency. Uh, and instead of the burden being on Marylanders, it's spread across uh, those who are benefiting from our investments. How do you calculate it, though? Center focus. And I mean, I just mentioned um, $84 billion of advertising revenue for Facebook, Google, $147 billion. How do you do and what calculation are you applying to say this chunk of that money is ours? Sure. So, look, this is a this is a hard question. And, and it, it, admittedly, um, this is going to be the co- most complicated aspect of this because it is so uh, this industry sector is very complicated. Uh, ultimately, we are relying on self-reporting, which is what we generally do for taxes. We assume that companies are going to be honest with the state and their taxation. And then, of course, we audit to make sure. Um, and so there is a level of self-reporting. These are sophisticated companies. They make over $100 million in digital advertising revenue per year. I'm sure they have teams of accountants uh, that can that certainly will be able to provide honest uh, assessments. What we are really getting at is digital advertisements that are served up in the state of Maryland on any device. So be it through geolocating, through IP addresses. Uh, There are a number of different ways. And admittedly, this is not a simple calculation. Uh, This is something that would have to be developed over time, just as we have done with the tax code for many other areas. When we think about corporate income, it's very complicated. And over time, we've had to make adjustments. Uh, and this is um, this is modernizing our tax code to ensure that everyone is paying their fair share. I mean, the various trade bodies, and I mentioned a couple of the companies here, is saying, look, you're, you're violating the Federal Internet Tax Freedom Act, which prohibits discrimination against electronic commerce as well as, well as um, other federal laws, of course. I guess you could look at this and say, how does this fit with people who advertise on billboards or in newspapers, for example? And I guess you've already answered the question digitization has moved on. The industry, the market, the way people advertise has moved on and the laws simply haven't. Is that your response? I would say that that is the premise. I'd also say that the, the, the federal statute that a number of these companies are relying upon was passed in 1996. In 1996, a number of these <laughs> platforms did not exist. So um, I think we're in a very different world now in 2021. And so, you know, what we've also seen over the last 10 years here in the States is a case called South Dakota versus Wayfair, in which the same, a number of the same companies made the very same arguments. And the state of South Dakota stood up and said, out of state sellers, just because you're out of state, still owe, uh, you've availed yourselves to the privileges of South Dakota. And so you must pay the sales tax if you're shipping goods into the state of uh, South Dakota. For 10 years, that same battle was fought. Finally, the Supreme Court stepped in, said, nope, if you avail yourselves to the privileges of a state who has made investments in broadband and public education, then you owe a duty to that state. This is the same concept, and it's the same tired arguments being brought uh, this time around digital advertising services. Um, Fundamentally, I think a number of states across this country and countries across the globe are going to be having this very same conversation because uh, it just simply does not work that, that companies can grow exponentially by being free riders on states' public investments and then contribute nothing back uh, for the ongoing success of those communities. I think everybody on building a world class. Sorry, please. Yeah, to your point, everybody's grappling with how best to do this. And we've seen the example with and it's a different example, but it's very much tied in what's happened in Australia with with Facebook and at least temporarily Facebook turned off news in Australia. And obviously the Australian government were like, you know, 
you're powerful, but you're not that powerful and we'll fight and find they've settled. What do your voters think? What do your small businesses that advertise on these platforms say, Senator? And are they prepared for these big Internet giants to go, you know what? We won't operate in your state. We'll switch off Facebook. You can't search on Google anymore. Are you prepared for that? You know, look, if I were the leader of some of these companies, I would look in the mirror in the morning and say, is this really the fight that I want to have? Is this really the image that I want to broadcast? Or should I be thinking critically about how we can ensure that states are investing in public education to ensure that we have a discerning populace that's well educated and can participate in a global economy? Um, You know, I think that this is a really existential question for a number of the leaders of these organizations. This is not a punishment. Taxation is not a punishment. We have to invest in our public education system to make sure that the the kids and families in Maryland have access to a world-class education. If that's something they want to fight and say that they they don't believe that despite all of the benefits that they have inured over these many years in order to grow, that they owe no duty to help ensure the future, you know, I, I, yeah, that's not a very strong business case to make, I think, in the long run. And so we'll see how this plays out. Uh, I think what happened in Australia, we're seeing, you know, it, it, it sort of seems like a David and Goliath uh, a story. You know, we'll be over here finding the right little pebble because at the end of the day, this is <laughs> this is a conversation we have to have. I was going to say, who's David and who's Goliath, quite frankly, when we're talking about nation states and big tech companies. But I take your point. And I think the line there was taxation's not a punishment it's a duty and a service to, to those that you utilise. And, and it's a privilege. Operate. Yeah, it's a privilege. Sir, great to have you on. We'll get you back when uh, we see further developments. Senator Bill Ferguson. Thank there, you so much. Stay safe. Maryland. Thank you. You too. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Wind power now generating more than half the renewable energy produced in South Africa. Eleni Jokos explores the country's commitment to expanding the use of wind power in today's Connecting Africa. The World Bank invested more than $11.5 billion into renewable energy projects in Africa between 2014 and 2018 as electrification is seen as key in driving economic growth on the continent. We've got 34 wind farm projects spread across the country, mostly in the Eastern Cape and the Northern Cape and then also in the Western Cape. So there's a lot of um, untapped potential, not just in South Africa, but in the whole continent. The advantages of renewables are obviously broad, but what we value most is the fact that you can install renewables over a continent in multiple locations rather than as burning coal, where you want to have your power plant uh, close to the mine. Uh, So we can empower communities, not just in one concentrated area, but we can go broad uh, over a continent. In South Africa, the program that allows independent power producers to submit competitive bids to design, develop and operate large or small-scale renewable energy power plants has been an enormous success. We are headed for a huge growth phase in the industry. There's going to be lots of opportunities for uh, players across the value chain, whether development, whether construction, uh, operation and maintenance, to actually get involved in the sector and um, uh, contribute and benefit. 
Since its launch in 2011, the Public-Private Partnership Programme has attracted over $13 billion in private sector investment and has created around 38,000 jobs, predominantly in local communities. So how many houses can you light up from this farm? This is probably about 100,000 houses. So uh, we generate around 320 gigawatt hours uh, of electricity per year. Do you think we're going to see a lot more of these projects in the next few years? And how much do you think that it can you know, actually contribute to the national grid? The government's brought out the Integrated Resource Plan 2019, which gives us an idea of um, the renewable, well, the, the energy mix up to 2030. We are looking at around 500 average sized turbines that needs to be commissioned every year to, to reach that target. We're really in for a fantastic ride. All right, and now as we wrap up the show, one more check of what we're seeing in terms of price action. The sell-off in tech stocks deepening here. You can see the Nasdaq now down just over 3%. Tesla, one of the big losers, dragging us lower here, now off more, around 10%. I wonder whether sentiment there tied to what we're seeing in Bitcoin as well, given $1.5 billion is on the balance sheet. All this as we await Fed Chair Jay Powell's congressional testimony on the state of the U.S. economy beginning in a few minutes in Washington. Watch the comments on stimulus and watch the comments on inflation. And finally, from solar winds to Martian winds, turn up your TV because this is what Mars sounds like. sound of Mars. It actually sounds like static. NASA's Perseverance rover capturing winds on the red planet in the first of a kind recording. The rover beamed back high quality video as it descended and landed last week. These images show the rover being released as it approaches its landing site. Wow. These images are incredible. That's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on Twitter and Instagram later. Search for at J. Chastely CNN. And for now, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.